2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going here because for me it is the, it's where I've gone following the last two Sundays. It is where I've gone to, and, and I think will be helpful as we consider what it means to be built on the sand of the rock and what it means to be faithful to the end. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'll be reading from the ESV translation, verses 1 to 10. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am ready, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus, to Dalmatia. That is the reading of God's word. As I was reading this passage this week, I've been thinking about endings. And it's interesting, right? See, when you look through quotes of the last words from famous people, I am convinced 90% of them are made up to try and sound, to make them sound a bit more brilliant. I enjoyed Churchill's apparent last words. I'm so bored with it all. Or John Calvin at the end of his will, one of the last things he wrote, he wrote this, and I testify and declare that it is my intention to spend what yet remains of my life in the same faith and religion which he has delivered to me by his gospel. Thinking wider about endings, have you ever watched something? You ever watched a series or a film that's been really, really good and it just has the most naff of endings? You ever watched Lost? Oh, I won't go into it. If you, in fact, if you've not seen it, don't waste your time. Brilliant series, the worst ending you will ever see. And I've been thinking about endings because this is the last of Paul's writings. This is the end for him. The end is very, very near. So I think this passage is fascinating for us because it's, what, what would he now say? What would he now say to young Timothy? What is it at the end that is so, so important. What if he had just one more opportunity to write, would he say to Timothy and in hand, us? a couple of observations as you read this chapter. Firstly, this isn't a man with regret. We don't read here of a man in Paul who is saying, if only I'd done that. If only I'd done this. If only, if only. That's not at all what we read here. What we read of is a fulfilled man who knows his purpose, who, who knew his purpose, and he lived it, out, lived it out as faithfully as he possibly could. At the end of verse 16, he forgives those who have wronged him. That's a marvelous thing. 
That's marvelous that at the end still he is able to forgive. He mentions 17 different people in this chapter. It's an indication for us that he had friends, that he knew people, that he loved to win people for Jesus, but he had friends. And I think it shows us that even though his own days were numbered, he thought of others. This isn't a self-centered writing. And, and Paul gives Timothy two charges here. The second is a personal instruction, and that is simply to bring my cloak, uh, verse 13, bring me books and bring me parchments. Let me be warm, let me read, let me write. That's his personal instruction. But there's one other instruction that fascinates me as his last words, and it's far, far, far more significant. And we find it in three words in verse 2. Preach the word. That's his instruction. That's Paul's instruction to Timothy towards the end of his life. His last encouragement he can give to this brother is preach the word. So let's go back into verse 1 and we'll look at who he's charged by. He's charged in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. This is a serious moment. Okay, he's not saying as a friend... I want you to do this. But he's saying, look, in front of the judge of the living and the dead of all things, I charge you. This is huge. I don't think there's any other phrase he could use here to show the level of seriousness that he has about what he's telling Timothy. And I think it would do us good to reflect on this. I think it would do us good to reflect more often on what it means that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. Why? Because I think it encourages us as we walk our Christian life, to do so carefully and thoughtfully. I think it saves us from laziness. I think it keeps us from being lackadaisical about the way we do life because we remember that one day we will stand before the Lord. I also think it delivers us from fear. There is but one judge. Why fear Man, I think this, the understanding that Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead gives us great courage not to stand in fear of the face of man, but to give us a gospel boldness that says, I will be held accountable to one and one only. But I also think that this should encourage us in difficult days because it certainly encouraged Paul to know that if we are found in the Lord Jesus, if we are redeemed, But we are his, clothed in his righteousness. He's saying here, Timothy, focus for a minute, dear brother. Focus. This is important. God is your judge. Church, focus. This is important. God is your judge. And, and preach the word is the foundational three words that the rest of this passage flows from. Timothy then was to preach with this sort of authority and clarity and boldness. This is how he was to preach. He was to preach as if he was preaching his last sermon in front of the judge of the living and the dead. The word that saints and sinners alike desperately need. But it's interesting, isn't it, of everything he could have told Timothy to do, everything he could have told him to focus on. Feeding the poor, looking after the brothers and sisters, singing well, praying well, of everything good that he could have said, he says, preach the word. 
And I think the reflection on that here and for us is that the word preached must be central in the local church. There is no substitute. There are many fresh expressions, many types of things, many gimmicky ideas and well-intentioned ideas of church, of ideas that we can use to bring people in. And it's evangelistic events, sure, but to replace the focused spoken word gathering, no. There are well-intentioned gatherings that focus on music and prayer or fellowship. These are good things. These are great things. It's great to sing. It's great to fellowship. It's great to pray. But they will not and they cannot ever replace the proclamation of the word. So I want to think a little bit then about what it means for the preaching of the word to be central within the local church. And I think Mark Dever, who, who writes a lot about healthy churches, really helpful. I think he gives us this helpfully. So asking the question, what is a healthy church? Building a healthy church is to call Christians to listen to God's word. Why? Because God's word is the source of all life and health. It's what feeds, develops, and preserves an understanding of the gospel itself. You see, a healthy, Bible-believing, gospel-focused, centered church is a place that is wholly committed to the exposition of the Word of God. Wholly committed. There are negotiables in the life of the church. There's negotiables in, in, in how we sing, in the arrangements of these things. There's negotiables in, in how we sing, in how we pray, in the building, in the ministries that we run. There's conversations to be had on all these things. As long as it honors the Lord, let's go for it. There are many different ways we could do things, but there is certainly a hill to die on. And the hill that I would die on, that Craig would die on, that Timothy and Paul would certainly die on, is that the word must be preached. And it's to be preached in the reality of Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead. Nothing within the local church, can take the place of the preached word. Why? Well, thankfully, he tells us, be ready, in and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The word is relevant for every season of life. Times of joy, times of grieving, times of rejoicing, times of silence, and everything in between. The word is applicable, it is useful, and it is good for us. Whatever age and stage we find ourselves at, whatever the circumstances we might possibly face, God has something to say to you in his written word. And the preaching must be marked by three things. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Or we could say conviction, warning, and encouragement. To quote what is an old preacher's rule, he should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. You see, we cannot attempt to convict with no remedy because all you then do is add to people's burdens. All you do is leave church thinking, I'm so rubbish. But then at the same time, you can't just offer an encouragement that says, your sin is totally justified and totally okay. Go enjoy because Jesus lives and everything's rosy and fabulous. We can't do that either. But biblical preaching, the preaching of the words, shows it all. The conviction, the warning, yet the glorious encouragement of the gospel. The end of verse 3, the preacher must be patient. Preaching is not about 
results. It's not about how many people get saved today, but it is about faithfulness and patience to preach the word. And in his preaching, he must teach. Teaching, preaching, intertwined. They don't, I don't simply exist to stand here and tell you Bible stories or think of the illustrations that could make you laugh the most. We don't just read a verse and then forget about it and move into some kind of motivational talk. But true preaching and teaching is the explanation, the opening, and the application of biblical doctrine. It is taking what is within the word and it is expounding it, bringing it out, and applying it to our lives. And we find the root reason of why this is so, so, so important in verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Why is it so important for a church to be grounded in the word at its very foundation? Because the time is coming, and oh boy, it has come, when people don't want truth, when people don't want good, healthy, biblical doctrine of the Word of God. There are all sorts of schemes and ideas and novelties, because itching ears are appealing. To find those who would justify what we want to be justified. For those to disagree with the word in the ways that we want to disagree with it. Our ears can itch. And of course, the fact that a preacher might have a large congregation says nothing of his orthodoxy. says nothing of his ability, his gifting, more importantly, the truth that he speaks. Because often it's easier to fill a room with people being fed what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. But people turn from the truth, reject the truth, and why? To suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. See, the result of preaching to, to itching ears is a congregation becomes so comfortable. It becomes comfortable professing Christians, listening to a comfortable, religiously masked talk that contains no ounce of gospel truth. Preach the words with teaching. If they don't endure, itching ears will turn them from the truth. That's the summary of these verses. And we find this emphasis of Paul and preach all the way through the pastoral epistles. We find them all throughout his writings. And he reminds Timothy as he prepares for this work, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist and fulfill your ministry. See, Timothy's ministry wouldn't be a carbon copy of Paul's. It's itinerant to an extent as Paul's was on his missionary journeys. But, but no God's directed ministry is in any way small or insignificant. There's a story of a young preacher who once went up to Charles Spurgeon and said, I don't have the size of congregation I deserve. So Spurgeon said, so how many do you preach to? And the man said, about 100. And solemnly, Spurgeon replied, that will be enough to give account for on the day of judgment. We don't measure the fulfillment of ministry and statistics or on what people see. But we recognize that the greatest call for both us as individuals, as preachers, 
as everybody else who would serve in any sort of role within the life of the church, for all of us, it is a faithfulness because God sees the heart. That's why Timothy had to be sober-minded. He had to carry out the purpose with which he was given with all sincerity for that exact reason. And that brings me then to what I think is the most fascinating part of this passage. Because we have two examples given to us. We have an example of obedience and devotion in the life of Paul. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is now Paul's reality. The drink offering was the cup that the Jewish priest would pour out beside the altar as, as the animal was sacrificed. It signified the end. Paul's life was coming to an end. This is written in Roman imprisonment and he expects to be executed before not too long and we believe that is the case. He'd already made a courtroom appearance and he doesn't expect to make another. So what he's saying here in verse 6 is Caesar's not going to kill me but I'm going to give my life as a sacrifice to Christ. I've been a living sacrifice. I've served him since the day I was saved. Now I will complete that sacrifice by laying down my life for him. And then he, as, as this is very real for him, he utters what are probably the most famous words of, of, of 2 Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You see, this, this verse 7 is the result of everything Craig has spoken about in the last two weeks. This is, this is the words we hear and we think of when we think of those who built their house upon the rock. That's what we think of. It's words like these. People that build their house upon the rock, that listen and do, are those that know this to be true. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I fought the good fight. Paul, has, he's overcome suffering, great suffering. He's endured to the end. That's his reflection. This is him looking around. He's looking around him where he is. He's taking in a reality check and he's saying, do you know what? I've fought and I've fought the good fight. I wonder, Christian, in all good conscience, are you fighting the good fight? Are you living in obedience to your maker. In all good conscience, can we say, I am fighting the good fight. I've finished the race. This, of course, has all sorts of pictures for us of athletes and those racing. He's now anticipating what is about to come. But he also knows that his purpose of taking the gospel out to the Gentiles has been fulfilled. He knows that he has done so with obedience and I have kept the faith. He stayed true to his calling. His appointment as an apostle of Jesus Christ and a proclaimer of the gospel, he has done. I think this is a good tool for us, this verse. As much as it is a helpful verse in times of 
especially at funerals. They're wonderful words. They are words I want to hear at my funeral, and I hope they're words you want to hear at yours too. Have we fought the good fight with everything that life may throw at us? Are we fighting the good fight with everything life may throw at us? Are we on course as athletes with the full view of eternal life with Christ Jesus in our view? Are we in our lane and are we focused on the end? And are we keeping the faith? Are we true, first and foremost, to our calling as disciples of the Lord Jesus? He looks around, he looks back, he looks forwards. Then he says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Where, where does Paul find certainty? Where does he find hope? in what is a rubbish situation for him? Where does he find courage? Where do the millions of persecuted believers around this world today find hope in the face of death? Where do you find hope and certainty today? I hope the answer is in Christ Jesus, the judge, who has laid up for me the crown of righteousness. That's where we find hope to persevere. The world is not all there is. There is so much more to come. And one day, those who know, those who believe, those who do, will one day see him and know what it is to have a crown of righteousness. This is an example of the words of a brother who knows he's loved. Who knows that he is safe in the hands of God. This is a brother in full submission to the King of Kings and has walked well. We then turn to verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I'm not going to quote the other two brothers after that because we really don't know why they went. Maybe they were sent, maybe they went, but we can't comment on them. If you've ever read the Pilgrim's Progress, this name may well be familiar to us. Demas is the man standing on the little hill at Lucre where the silver mine is. It's a dangerous place to go because if you detour to see it, the ground's unstable and you can fall in and be taken away. But Demas is the, char is the character here that seeks to take Christian and hopeful and says, come a little closer to the silver mine. This is rare. Come and see what there is. He was hoping in this story, if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, it's so good. But what he seeks to do is take the characters of Christian and Hopeful and take them from the narrow path and offer them the wealth of this mine as distractions from their way to the celestial city. But for Demas, in love with the present age, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Do you know, the day after I decided to preach this passage, an article was written by Master Seminary entitled, The Most Terrifying Verse in the Bible. And it was this verse. Can you put it up on screen, you and for us? Just verse 10. Perfect. Uh, okay, I missed a slide. My bad. You can go back again. Thank you. Verse 10. Entitled, The Most Terrifying Verse 
in the Bible. And, and this article opens with this. I believe that out of the 31,102 verses in Scripture, there are none more sobering and terrifying than 2 Timothy 2, 4, 10. Because there we find the reality more dreadful than hell itself. The mere thought of it should cause every genuine believer to tremble in fear and consider anew the state of their soul before the living God. You see, this is a verse in amongst many verses. This is the beginning of a list of people, so we read it fast. We read through it. We maybe don't take notice. But who is Demas? Well, he's mentioned three times to us. Colossians 4.14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. And then at the very end of Philemon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark. Uh, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So what do we know about Demas, if that's all we've got? We know that he's the real deal. This is a brother in the ministry. This is, this is a brother in gospel work. This is a commended brother that, that is um, associating with and is on the same page as some of the greats of the earliest days of the church. He's mentioned alongside Mark, who's related to Barabbas, who in Acts 12, it was his mother-in-law's home, the early church met in, in Jerusalem. This guy, Demas, is the real deal. He is in the inner circle. He is as close to the epicenter of the early explosion of the gospel as you could just about possibly get. And surely if there is anybody who is going to heal the words, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, it's going to be Demas. But Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. Demas apostatizes. Demas leaves the faith. We have no idea what happens to him. Hopefully he will be in heaven. Hopefully one day he returns. Hopefully he did. Or maybe he loved the world so much he followed the pleasures of the world and he never returned. We don't know. But you know, these words cut deep as we read them. Because personally, they, I can think of some very close-to-home examples of people once walking well with the Lord, now in love with the present world, deserting the faith. And I'm sure as I say that, there are people that pop into your minds that once knew and walked with the Lord that now no longer do. It's hard to read. It's hard to think about. It's painful for us. I'm sure we're not hard-pressed in our families, our friendship groups. I'm sure you could probably look around this church and think of members once here now following the ways of the world. It's painful to watch. And it was painful for Paul too. See, the word deserted is the same word used when Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Deserted, forsaken, abandoned. Really, really strong language here. Really hard language, but it shows the extent of what Demas had done. I don't think Paul tells us what he did because I think he wants to save him from the embarrassment of it. But really my point in all of this, in view of having the word preached at the center, and you look at that and say, yeah, but how can it be that important when we have guys like Demas who has sat under the very best of gospel teaching and yet has still walked away. There isn't some formula here that says preach the word faithfully, and if the preacher's somehow good at what he does, then everything will be all right for everybody. Not at all. But we have a very stark contrast here between verse 
uh, 7, 8, and 10. One walks faithfully, one deserts. Demas didn't love Jesus. He loved the world. And you know why I think this is a terrifying verse is because it should cause each of us to turn and go, how? Why? Why on earth when everything in front of you is so glorious? Why when everything around about you is so exciting and you see the Lord at work everywhere? How can you forsake the glory of all of that for this rotten world? How can you, Demas? How can you be so quick to turn on the beauty of Jesus? And from that, we must then ask ourselves... How can I make sure I will not love the present age at the expense of my soul? That's the question for each and every one of us. How do we ensure we do not become Demas? And the answer becomes abundantly clear. Funnily enough, we find the answer in Matthew chapter 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fall because... It had been founded on the rock. I thought it was interesting. Simon and I were discussing this passage this week. We were reflecting on the character of Judas and in how many ways what Demas did is worse than Judas. Judas hadn't seen the, the, the gospel message carried out to completion. He didn't have the full view that we have today. He didn't have the full view of the other side of the cross like Demas did. He had the full of redemption's plan in front of him, as we do. Yet he decided to love the world and desert. Demas was as close to the, the eruption of the gospel as it went forth as you could be. Yet it wasn't enough. If anyone sat on the faithful preaching, it was Demas. But it wasn't enough. So what do we learn Listening is not enough. That's what we learn. This is everything that, I mean, you could literally insert Craig from two weeks ago here and everything that he said in Matthew 7. But that is where we find full relevance of Matthew 7. To sit under the word is not enough. But if our hearts are open and we are ready to take in the truth, if we let it fall on good soil, and works in us as we guard it with prayer. We might become doers of the word. Friends, we have to work hard that the word may not fall on the hard path or in the rocky or thorny ground. We must work hard. You see, the abandonment of the faith often isn't that grand. But often it starts in the small choices that we make. You imagine the set of scales in front of you, the world in Jesus. You see, the things we watch, the freedoms we embrace, the laziness that we allow, the greed and the selfishness that we entertain, all these things are so enticing. All these things are so appealing. Far more in my own life than I would ever care to admit to you from a pulpit. But Demas, this brother, a great brother, a gospel brother, has now left the faith for the pleasures of the world. What happened to him, we don't know. And we finish then. So what is this 
solution. There is a reason. I entitled this The Church That Loves the World. Because loving is so much more than just hearing. I, found, I think that's been probably my most helpful conclusion that I've thought of in the last couple of weeks, is that, that to love the world and to love the Lord is so much more than just hearing. But it's about doing something. And there's a reason then that, that the preaching of the word was so foundational to Timothy's ministry, why it had to be such a priority then and today in the church. It's because the word convicts us and warns us, encourages us. We must not give in to itching ears. And the truth must be proclaimed from this pulpit and, and received in our hearts and our lives and pulpits throughout this world. The word must be absolutely central. It is vital to the local church. It is vital to the health of the church. There is no healthy local church without the proclamation of the words. And we want to be James 1.22 people. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. I think that's my conclusion to all of this is James 1.22 but be doers of the word and not hearers only. James has lots to tell us on this. Lots and lots and lots. Just a couple of verses from James 4. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So, might we then be a church family that loves and cherishes the words, may our listening not be passive, may our singing not be mundane, may this table not be done from mindless routine, but might they be done as acts of obedience to the judge of the living and the dead, and might our hearts and our minds be submitted fully to God. Might we take the seed that is planted in us every time we open the scriptures, not just here, and might we prepare our hearts to ensure we're ready to receive it. In Paul, we have this stunning example of faithfulness all the way to the end, of a brother so sure of his assurance all the way in the most difficult of moments. And in Demas, we have a grave warning, friends, for the lures of this world. So might we be doers of the world and not only hear us. Before we gather around the Lord's table, we're going to sing. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for godly examples that have gone before us of those faithful to you. We thank you for those who, when we hear those words of I have fought the fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, those people that spring to our minds as wonderful, good and godly examples in our lives. We thank you for them. We thank you for the many that sit around us that are just great godly examples to us. But Lord, might that be the reality for each and every one of us. Might we know the crown of righteousness laid up for us. God, help us, please, by your spirit to be people that do not passively listen, but love and do. Lord, we need you so desperately. We so desperately need the work of your spirit in our lives as individuals and corporately. Help us, Lord, to follow you as faithfully as we can that we might see the gospel take deep, deep, deep roots in us and in this community that surrounds us. We pray all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.